Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The first thing that one has to acknowledge about Jeffrey Tubin is that he is one prolific person. He began his career as a prosecutor, controversially wrote a book about his most celebrated early case as a junior member on the team that tried Oliver North uh, during the Iran-Contra scandal. He's written about the OJ case. He's written two books about the Supreme Court. He wrote about the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the 2000 recount, and he is a frequent presence as a legal commentator for CNN. Jeffrey is full of insights uh, that are worth hearing and has a great story to boot. I sat down with him this week when he visited the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Jeff Tubin, it's great to welcome you to the Institute of Politics and, and here to the the podcast. The most beautiful part of the most beautiful city. Hyde Park doesn't get any better than this. Now we have tape of you at Northwestern saying something different. It's but. because I've been around <laughs> politics long enough yes, to pander to wherever I things. am. Yeah, you're going to go yes. far in this business. <laughs> so, you know, you believe uh, we all like to believe in self-determination, that we have independent will and we can be what we want to be. And uh, and then, you know, I always tell the story, my mother was a, uh, was a reporter at PM in New York. Oh, wow. In the 40s. The, the lefty tabloid. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then she would, went, went freelance after it folded and ultimately ended up in advertising doing qualitative research. But she always says she named my sister and me because she thought the names would look good in a byline. And years <laughs> later, I ended up as a newspaper reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I say this because uh, you are the product of two journalists. And your mom, Marlene Sanders, was someone who I, uh, as, as an inveterate news watcher as a kid, remembered. And she stood out for the obvious reason, which were there weren't that many women on television. Uh, one, ne- one woman at each network. Nancy Dickerson at NBC, Pauline Frederick at CBS, and my mom at, at ABC. I mean, that's what it was like in those days. Yeah. Places. And what was that like for you growing up? Well, you know, the, y- your question about sort of our destiny, um, I think is even more resonant in my case, because at least explicitly, both my parents, my dad was was involved in public television, was Bill Moyer's producer for many years. Um, So they were both in media during my formative years, were explicit in their desire for me not to be a journalist, that they really, I mean, they liked, they liked their work, but they found the the instability, the competitiveness, the the mercurial nature of who's up and who's down. That's what I heard a lot at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. But notwithstanding the explicit message of don't do this, I think I saw the excitement, the 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 um, 
fundamentally interesting nature of the work that they did. And even though, at least in my early, you know, part of my career when I went to law school and practiced law for a few years, I, I often refer to this as sort of coming into my genetic destiny, mm-hmm. uh, that, that uh, you know, I always did student journalism. I, I spent most of my college years on, on the college newspaper. I met my wife on the college mm-hmm. newspaper. Um, and um, I, I started freelancing when I was in law school and, 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 and wrote my first book about a legal experience about working on the Iran-Contra investigation. So, you know, it was always there, but it was not in, you know, it it, wasn't, it it wasn't, it wasn't. No, no, we all make, we all make, uh, we all make pretensions to doing something else and then end up where we're, where we're, where our senses, where our instincts, where our genes uh, take us, I suppose. But your mom, she was, uh, I think the first correspondent, female correspondent to go to Vietnam? She was. It, well, first network news, cor- woman network news correspondent, or I think any kind of television, mm-hmm. American television reporter to go there. And, and I do, it's funny, I ha- she, she went in 1966 when I had just turned six years old. And the only thing I remember about that trip, which of course she talked about for years afterwards, was uh, going with her to get her shots where she mm-hmm. went. And I remember being horrified by the number <laughs> of shots that she had to get. But, you know, I was always thrilled by her work. I mean, I, I, I was always proud of her. I mean, I often tell the story or of how when I was in first grade, uh, I went home with some other kid for some reason at lunch, and I reported in shock that night you know his mother was home in the middle of the day what was she doing there why wasn't mm-hmm. she at work i mean that was the world i grew up in and i thought it was i thought it was great and i loved it, the story she worked on and later as i became older i would occasionally go with her on stuff and it was I, you know it was a pretty active time to be a i mean the 60s were uh, we're now coming up on the anniversary of 1968 uh, my, but, which was a huge event in in my my mother's career. She covered Bobby Kennedy's assassination. She was at the Chicago the convention down the street, yeah. where she was tear gassed, and uh, she was. We lived not that far <clears throat> from Columbia University, and she would often be called in the middle of the night to go up there or whatever. Yeah, craziness well, Columbia was, was a uh, was a hotbed of activism right. at that time. Um, you uh, have said or you've written uh, that. Like most of us of our generation, uh, Watergate was kind of a watershed uh, event. Tell, tell me why. Well, you know, the two, two things. Um, I, I first remember reading the newspaper. I, for, for your younger listeners, maybe we should explain yes, what, what, what a newspaper are, yes. is. It was, yes. like the, it, was, it was a big deal this in those is, days. Yes, a physical uh, <laughs> representation of what you get on digital. Exactly. Yes. So think of it as like a giant phone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, I started reading the paper during the McGovern campaign in 1972. I remember uh, th- that my parents would, I-, I used to take the bus to school and they would like tear out the political pages to give to me. But in 1974, I really started following the news. I was 14 and uh, I-, I was a huge baseball fan and Watergate, I was a Mets fan, as, yeah, I, re- as yeah. I remain, sadly. Yes, yes. Uh, but I... Um, it was like following baseball in the sense that there were so many subplots and so many characters that you had to like learn whole teams. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn had to learn who what the plumbers were, and you had to learn who the investigators were, and you had to learn who the you know the members of the House Judiciary Committee were. Yeah. And and you know, I, I guess 
I was, you know, a, a liberal and a Democrat and rooting against Nixon. But what I mostly remember was just sort of loving the intrigue of it all and and the drama of it. Yeah, and that was that certainly. It was a lesson, certainly, in sort of the importance of the essential nature of our democratic institutions. Yeah, I mean that's a high-minded way of looking at it today. Well, I'm older now. Yeah, yeah, but 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 and and I certainly in retrospect recognize that that but was the case. But you did have a sense of the gravity of yes. what was happening. I yes. mean that was that you knew this was and now we'd just come through the 60s where lots of things happened that one couldn't have imagined. But the idea of a president there hadn't been any in, there hadn't been an impeachment since Andrew Johnson. The idea of a president being impeached and it also became kind of a, you know, and this is of course the where Woodward and, and Bernstein come in, but it was an unfolding mystery that it was a real life drama and and um it it was it was a real life drama in every sense of the word particularly just in the in the in the intro in the the fact that there were new developments all the time yeah. and, and i certainly remember uh you know i don't remember it day by day but when it came out that there were tapes of mm-hmm. the white house that's when you knew that this thing was going to just carry on to the end because that's when th- right. that's when you know you well, knew that, that, that had the, the co- the, and and that ultimately they were going to have to surrender them and right. it, it was going to be bad for Nixon right um, now how much of that led you into this journalism direction and how much of that to introduce the notion of maybe it'd be cool to be a lawyer I, I think it was more the latter actually uh, I remember being really uh, impressed with fond of looked up to um, the the young prosecutors who worked for Archibald Cox and then Leon Jaworski I mean that was they they were the ones more than Woodward and Bernstein that I thought wow that's 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 what I'd like to do um, and uh, so when they, for whatever reason, that's the 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 path that, that seemed most appealing to me even then, and that feeling stuck with me for many many years. Well, and you went to Harvard. You mentioned you were a real active student journalist, and did you know right away that you were going to go to law school there? I did. I I, I had every sense. You know, my my sort of. Uh, I, I, you're supposed to go to college and, and like open your mind and and I think the day I arrived at college, my mind was closed. I was going to go to the best law school that I could get into and then become a Let me a say, prosecutor. my friend, you probably are not the first person who arrived at Harvard with that state of mind. Yeah, yeah. well, being an asshole was part of going to Harvard, so <laughs> that was, you know, part of there the goes experience. your alumnus of the year yeah, award. That's right, yeah, and so that was true of me, certainly. So when you and when you graduated from law school. Um, you mentioned that one. Did you go directly to? No, the no. I mean, and and this was this was um, you know again sort of the the crazy way life works. Um, I got a clerkship um, with um, a judge on the Second Circuit, J. Edward Lombard, who was um, eighty five years old, born nineteen oh one, and he was part of this great network of Thomas E. Dewey. Um, assistants, um, who these sort of moderate Republicans. Uh, I, Lombard was appointed to the bench by uh, Eisenhower. Uh, he was great friends with, uh, I mean, he was a protege of Dewey's. He was Henry Friendly, Walter Mansfield, um, all, all um, 
you know, the, the kind of the, Republicans John, that don't exist anymore. That don't exist anymore. Right. Very, and and yes. and Lombard even then could tell. Um, John we have Marshall a couple Harlan. stuff to on display uh, at the uh, Field uh, Museum uh, here. If you have, that's right. you have a few minutes. But um, he was uh, very close friends with Walter Mansfield. If you remember the Independent Council Law, there were three judges who appointed the Independent Council, mm-hmm. not, um, the, not the, 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 the the Justice Department, right. and. Um, while I was in my clerkship, Walter Mansfield, who was Lombard's best friend, also on the Second Circuit, participated in the decision to hire Lawrence Walsh as the independent counsel. And, you know, Iran-Contra was sort of the next big deal scandal after Watergate. It was like 1988, uh, 87, 88 versus 1974. <laughs> A scheme that was concocted to ferry funding to the Contras uh, fighting the regime uh, in uh, Nicaragua, and the money was uh, raised by illicit arms sales to, of all places, Iran. Iran, which which plagues the United States. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how that country and the United States, the the, the fraught relationship, seems to afflict virtually every president. Uh, who, who comes into office. But right, it was kind of the last Cold War scandal because, you know, the, the attempt to fund the Contras was basically a Cold War vehicle in Central America in this poor, sad, small country where the Reagan administration wanted to support the anti-communist rebels and um, the, the sort of the, the Democratic Party wanted to stay out of it. And that, and that was the, the heart of the, the controversy. So at a very, and, and, and one of the key prosecutions in this special counsel investigation was the prosecution of Oliver North, who had been a, uh, uh, an aide on the National Security Council and was uh, inter- integrally involved in, in executing this, uh, this plot, this strategy, whatever. I guess you called it a plot. Uh, it was. I, I mean, I, we, we, a conspiracy, we certainly yeah. called it. Yeah. And uh, uh, tell me about that. And, and that, pro- you, you know, you wrote a book about it. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what it was, what it, what it was for you as an experience to be almost directly out of law school other than this clerkship, and now you're involved in one of the most high-profile uh, prosecutions uh in in recent years, it was since water since water. It was right. it was yeah. it it was the absolute dream job to end all dream jobs for me. I was the 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 low man on the totem pole, which I deserved to be and sh- mm-hmm. sh- should have been. But I was on the totem pole. I was part of it, and I I worked on the North case. That was my assignment, and uh, it was it was absolutely thrilling. I got to see uh, great lawyers on both sides. John Kecker, uh, who was the uh, uh, a San Francisco defense lawyer mostly, was the lead prosecutor. Prosecutor and Brendan Sullivan, uh, the great lawyers from William and, Williams and Connolly, defended North, and it was this brawl of a trial. 
um, that ended in a mixed verdict with North convicted on three counts but acquitted, I think, of nine. And Ultimately, the, those were— the, and, and his his convictions were overturned. And it was a deeply political environment because there was uh, a parallel at the same time congressional investigation where in order to get North's testimony, they gave him use immunity. And the legal issue that ultimately sunk our case was that— um, the, the, the court ruled that the immunized testimony that he gave before Congress somehow infected our trial, and, uh, and thus his conviction had to be overturned. But that was in the future. And ultimately, you know, the great thing about being the junior person is, like, I wasn't responsible for winning or losing. I was just, you know, trying to do my best. And um, the, the, it was just, it was an absolutely great experience. I was wondering what you were thinking the other day when Ollie North reemerged as president of the NRA. You know, I, I mean, I, w- one of my first New Yorker stories when, when several years later I went to work on um, the, uh, at, at the New Yorker was a profile of Oliver North. So I profiled the guy I had prosecuted. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it's, you know, in a small way indicative of how um, how far to the right the Republican Party has gone that, you know, Oliver North could be— he, Remember, he was almost he ran, elected to the Senate. Right, in, he ran in, for the in, Senate in, in Virginia. And, and, and had it not been a three-way way, race, uh, may well have won. Uh, but, but it's just also indicative of how, you know, someone who was convicted of multiple felonies could re- resurrect himself and become— you know, he's been a Fox News stalwart for many years, and now he's a you know he's ta- he's taken the Charlton Heston seat at the NRA, uh, but but his embrace from the by the right is just indicative of uh, it's just a small signal of how far right the Republican Party has gone. The uh, f- former Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger was indicted by the Special Counsel, uh, I think, a week before the 1992 presidential election. And it was one of the things that uh, I think certainly supporters of President Bush would suggest prejudiced voters going into that uh, election. He then pardoned as one of his last acts, uh, Weinberger. Um, People point to this and the six-year tenure of the of that special counsel as an example of special counsels run amok. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering if there is there something to that, and is is that a fair surmise? I think there is something to that. Um, I should add that a couple things. One, I was gone from the office mm-hmm. by that point, even though my opinion was would not have been sought or, or believed. Offered an exculpatory but, 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 uh, disclaimer but there. I, I also, as I think we're going to discuss. Um, there, there, there grew to be bad blood between uh, Lawrence because you Walsh wrote and a me. book, right? And he resented it. He, he and was you not. guys had. We went. To, it was a court fight. Action, yeah, it was a court uh, fight. I mean, against he tried, each other. We, he he tried to stop it, and I had to sue to get clearance to to write the book, which I did. And um, you know, I I think, um, but but just to go to go back to your question about in, the indictment on the eve of the election. I think it's wrong. You know, when I was a lowly assistant U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, you know, after this, even I knew when I was investigating members of the city council, not exactly on a scale of presidential elections, that you don't do anything where you might interfere with an election. You don't subpoena witnesses. You certainly don't indict anybody. Um, It's just one of the absolute unwritten but universally— respected rules of federal prosecution that you don't 
inject yourself in the middle of elections. Mm-hmm. And I think Walsh made a very serious mistake in doing this. He could have waited. He could have done it earlier. Um, and I think it was indicative of some of the problems with the independent counsel law, which is which I think is a worse way of dealing things than special counsel, which is what we have now with Mueller, is that by setting up these these vast bureaucracies devoted to investigating only one person, you 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 run the risk of excessiveness. And I think you both know, Walsh a- and Ken Starr later, also a multi, multi-year investigation, uh, reflected the problems with that. You know, uh, speaking from my experience as a journalist, uh, it occurred to me as I was listening to you that there's a danger in empowering someone to look at one person or one thing, or a group to look at one person, one thing, in that uh, they have to be strong-minded enough to be able to come back and say, we did look at it, and there's nothing there that we've spent these tens of millions of dollars, and and you know so there's a real incentive to to show something for your work, right? And and also when you work as a federal prosecutor, as I did, you see that the press of business requires you to fisher cut bait at some point mm-hmm. that that you can't investigate one person or one thing for an indefinite period unless of time. that's all you <laughs> unless mm-hmm. you are uh you know that that's that's your that's your sole job and i think that's that's a risk with the independent counsel law now i i you know i know people in the Mueller investigation and i know they are very aware of this problem at least in theory and i don't think you will see Mueller going for five years mm-hmm. but but you also don't think that he'll be making indictments in close proximity to the election. He certainly will not be. He mm-hmm. certainly will not be. And and and, and close proximity is—it's an interesting uh, question of what close counts yes. as. Uh, but I, I would guess certainly thirty days and probably sixty days at an absolute minimum. He will keep his keep things down. Jim Comey, the former director of the FBI, famously injected himself into the election and his agency uh, into the election. And it was that was well within a 30-day window uh, of the... <laughs> it was within a 10-day window. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, I know you've spoken about this. Um, that, op- that, that seems in clear contravention of the rule that you have now, that, that you've articulated. And, you know, I've talked about why... He says that his motivation was to, 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 to save Hillary Clinton, who he thought was going to win from the taint of uh, suggestion that somehow this, it, uh, this information was suppressed. My suspicion is it was more about his own standing. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, Comey's decision to make that announcement on October 28th is, is unforgivable is is you you cannot uh, i think his defense which i think you you summarized accurately only underlined how absurd it was first of all i don't think fbi directors should be making political calculations like you know what what will be down the road you know if she in, in wins fairness, even uh, even the pundits didn't do very well with that well no <laughs> I, mean, particular I, I, I mean you know <laughs> I, I i certainly have retired from the business of making <laughs> predictions after uh, yes, my uh, predictions uh, of 2016 but 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 just in terms of you know whether Comey should have made that announcement on October 28th this is not hindsight i said at the time that this was a terrible idea i re- i continue to to uh, believe it was a terrible idea and i think Comey's justification for it 
in his book and book tour only underlines what a bad decision it what was. What about what he's doing now? He uh, he's surfaced at a time when the president uh, and the president's uh, amen corner over at Fox and elsewhere mm. are trying to make the case that this whole probe is politically motivated and that the FBI had a particular vendetta against him, that the uh, that this is inspired by Democrats and so on. And now you have the former FBI director who has taken center stage for quite a few weeks now uh, and, and, and going after the president in, in, in some caustic and personal ways. You know, um, th- this, the, the issue of Comey's book sort of brings in sharp relief my, the two sides of my background. Because as a journalist, you know, part of me thinks, well, the more the better out there. You know, we, we want to hear his version. We want to hear It's a question it. of when. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and that's where the, the, the lawyer in me comes, comes out. And, and, you know, this was, a, this was primarily, and I certainly know this from my book publishing experience, a commercial decision. Uh, yeah. To 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 get the book yes, out I know. at the time. I call time. the book higher royalty. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, to to get the book out at a time when it was going to sell the most copies, which is certainly what the publishers are all and about. And they succeeded. And they have succeeded uh, to a degree that I think even surprised them. But you know, Jim Comey, um, you know the the um, uh, you know who was who was the whole book is about how high minded he is. Uh, I think he. Um, you know, let let commercial considerations get ahead of you know the the more the the law enforcement needs of witnesses keeping their mouths shut and certainly not um, demonstrating their own political bias in advance of any testimony. Let me ask you because I know you're working on a new book about this probe that's ongoing now and the and what Mueller is doing and uh-huh. you know him. Uh, what do you think? He was the FBI di- director uh, preceding Comey. Right. I had a couple of interactions with him. I always tell people I never said a word when he was in the room. He would come to brief the president on a terrorist attack or something. Right. And I said I never uh, said a word because he scared the hell out of me. I mean, the guy was like from central casting. The, right. You know, if you were making a movie, he'd be the G-man. Um, and uh, I'm w- wondering what he, this, as stolid and as, as closed-mouthed and as... Uh, focused as he is, what he must think about Comey being out here on this uh, endless roadshow. I, I think you know uh, w- one of the uh, you know facts that's worth knowing about uh, Bob Mueller is that he wears a white shirt and only a white shirt every day because he doesn't want anyone to think that sh- that he's sending any sort of signal about what kind of day it is. Uh, I mean, th- that's that's the level of intensity that he brings. You know, he, he has brought a cot to his office where he worked, you know, in, in the special counsel's office where he sleeps many nights now. I mean, this is the kind of intensity that, that he brings to his work. And I, I you know, I, I think, you know, knowing, knowing him somewhat and knowing sort of how prosecutors think it's not so much that i think comey is a bad guy or a good guy it's like how do i deal with this problem mm-hmm. H- how am i if i am ever going to need comey as a witness how am i going to deal with the fact that he has compromised himself in that way um I-, I doubt he is sitting around saying i wish comey were a better person it's just like this is the way well no I but i'm wondering it. if he's sitting there thinking this guy's not making my life easier I, well i mean he 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 as a factual matter is not making Mueller's life easier i mean yeah. i think that we 
we, there's no doubt about that. And but but I think the the response of someone like uh, Mueller is not to stew about that, but rather how do I deal with it? You as you mentioned, you spent uh, uh, three or four years in the prosecutor's office in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, federal prosecutor's office in Brooklyn, and then uh, almost on a dime, uh, you you you. Th- Changed careers. I, I did, although you know, I've never really told the full story of why I changed careers. It's a perfect time. Well, you know, it is it is the perfect yes. time, and I I wanted to write this at some point, but anyway, I, I was um, I was an assistant U.S. attorney uh, starting in January of 1990, and in December of 1993, almost on my third anniversary, I got a call from the Justice Department, Office of Professional, the, the U.S. Attorney, like uh, Office of Professional or something, and I'll never forget this. This woman who I didn't know uh, called me and said, um, a, a lawyer in the Justice Department, and the first thing she said to me was, you might want to close your door. I was like, what? So I, it, you know, I had an office and I had a door and I closed the door and and um, the the woman said, you know, we have been conducting an investigation of your book and mm-hmm. your and we feel that you cannot um, continue to be an assistant U.S. attorney anymore. And we should point out there was controversy about your That's book. That's right. You I, were you were accused of taking. Classified files. Well, and, not and classified, case files. But, but 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 grand jury material. Right, it wasn't classified. I okay, mean, that, yeah. that, that's important distinction. Yes, no, it is. It and, is. Actually. And um, I, I, there was a court the, case. There yeah. was a court case. Mm-hmm. You know, my publisher and I sued Walsh, and the and we got permission to write the book. So the legally, I was on completely. Um, what's the opposite of thin ice? I I you, I, I, <laughs> I was I I had received blessing to write the mm-hmm. book, but. The, the, this woman at the Justice Department said, you know, I know you went to court, but but we feel it was inconsistent. And I said, what are you talking about? I've been an assistant for three years. That controversy is forgotten now. And I was at that point, you know, getting to be a fairly assistant, a senior assistant. I had tried a bunch of cases. I had, had a more and more responsibility. Anyway, long story short, Mary Jo White, who was the mm-hmm. deputy U.S. attorney at the time, she later became... Future head of the SEC. Yeah, and then was the U.S. attorney in the in, Southern District. Right. I was in the Eastern District in Brooklyn. She she went to Washington on my behalf. She said, "Come on, like this guy's a good assistant," and they said no. And so I, I, I was, I think, you know, there's a famous um, Casey Stengel story where Casey describes, you know, when he left one of uh, one of his jobs as manager, and he said, "We call it discharged because there was no question I had to leave." <laughs> and, and and that basically was my. I mean, I I was essentially fired. As an uh-huh. AUSA, not because of anything I had done. I was a good assistant. I mean, I wasn't the greatest prosecutor. Would of all you time. have stayed if that? Well, not, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't have left then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to stay another year, perhaps. But you know, I was. My, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was like, "What the hell am I going to do?" Um, and I. So you had this serendipitous I, meeting. I, well, I, I, I um, you know, had gotten to know a young, a youngish writer named David Remnick, mm-hmm. um, who was who was then just a writer, and he had just been hired at the New Yorker, and uh, by Tina Brown, and and I was telling him my tale of woe, and and I had already started talking to some lawyers about going to work as as as, and he said, well, you know, Tina Brown had just been hired, you know, you've written this book, you've written pieces, maybe you could get hired as a, you know, you know, she'll she'll hire you. Anyway, things were so chaotic at the New Yorker. I faxed in my clips, and for we could have subtitles to explain what a fax is yes. to a younger audience. And this is a really instructive uh, podcast for our I younger know, listeners. That's here. right. Yeah. Um, 
And um, long story short, I was hired at The New Yorker in three days as a staff writer on Talk of the Town. Mm-hmm. And and I figured, what the hell, I'll do this. I, you know, it was yeah. New Yorker's a prestigious place. I was making, a, you know, a decent living as a, as a salary. And I said, well, I'll, I'll try to be a journalist. And, um, you know, of course, it turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. But again... <laughs> this was not a completely voluntary uh, mm-hmm. or even at all voluntary departure from the, the U.S. Attorney's Office. But, you know, I, I landed— a, There's sort of a life lesson in this, oh my which God. is like I your mean, worst day can also you, be your best. I, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office was, um, you know, in, in Brooklyn Heights. Beautiful, It's mm-hmm. beautiful. And and the day that this woman called me and said, I, and said in effect, you're fired, I remember walking— across the Brooklyn Bridge back to Manhattan where I was living. And I was thinking, what the hell am I going to, how can I, you know, like, why am I getting fired? Right. And and it was just like one of these, it was a horrible, horrible day. And, it, you know, it turned out in retrospect to be practically the best day of my life. And shortly thereafter, uh, your, your two disciplines came together uh, because of a, a a trial that was being held out on the West Coast. It wasn't that was yet one the, of the, the trial the of the trial. century. It wasn't yet the trial. It was the murder. Uh-huh. It was 1994. I started work in the New Yorker, you know, basically in June of, mm-hmm. of uh, in January of 1993, and uh, June of 1994, the murder happens. And Tina Brown, you know, said to me, uh, "Just go out there and find a story." And I was lucky enough to find the Mark Furman story. Well, I wasn't lucky enough. Who was I was a good. I, I investigator we, on the scene. Right, who had this racist history and led to the, the whole issue of the race card. And it was like a really big scoop for The New Yorker. And uh, that really sort of put me on the map as a journalist. I got a book contract. I started appearing on television. But the OJ case was unquestionably the story that put me on the map as a journalist. And it was... Um that was a controversial piece that you wrote. It was. Uh, because basically you pulled the curtain on what was going to be the defense strategy, and it turned out to be the defense strategy, uh, the assumption being that you'll, you, there, were gonna be, there was going to be a diverse jury, and this might be a compelling argument uh, for that jury. We should stipulate, you have no doubt that O.J. Simpson was guilty as charged. Um, I- the the answer to that question is I have absolutely no doubt that mm-hmm. he was and is guilty. At the time I wrote that story, it was so soon after yeah, right. uh, the case that I, I I was less sure than I am now. It was quite clear to me, even then, they didn't pick his name out of the phone book as someone to arrest. I <laughs> yes. mean, there there there, there was a, already a lot of evidence, but but. But that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was, and, and what was so what was so great about covering the OJ case, was that, and to use a phrase that Tina Brown, you know, taught me, it was this perfect combination of high and low. That you had, you know, this celebrity story mm-hmm. and Hollywood and sports, but it was also about race in Los Angeles. Yes. It was also about Rodney King and the legacy of the LAPD, and that story and, mingled the two. And of them not just race. In Los Angeles, but really race in America. Uh, you know, I remember the day, as you do, when the verdict was read, and how differently that verdict was uh, uh, processed in in white neighborhoods and black uh, well, neighborhoods. The, the, you know, as big a story as the OJ case was, that the, what you're describing, the response to the um, to the verdict, 
sort of sent it even more into the stratosphere because we, we, we all remember these videos or we remember our own experiences watching, you know, white people look crestfallen and black people celebrating. Um, now, uh, my experience is, is being in the courtroom uh, and, you know, we, we all had to be quiet and the camera panned, it, 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 the famous video of the camera, you know, J Johnny Cochran puts his shoulder, his head mm -hmm. on OJ's shoulder, then the camera pans to the um, to the Goldman family, and I am seated directly behind them. And, and as many times as I see the video, now what I think is, God, you look so young. You know, it's <laughs> like, which is of course, you know, depressing and self-centered. But hey, yeah, what yeah. can I Not tell the most you? Empathetic uh, I know it's like, but, God, you were thirty-three. You yeah. were a kid. But you know, uh, the the thing about it is that. Uh, looking back through the lens of what we now know and what, you know, I was a police reporter here in Chicago, so I saw the, 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 the vast disparities of how justice was meted out. And the irony is O.J. had all the advantages of the celebrity client. He had the, the all-star legal team uh, and public relations strategy and so on. But I think that for a lot of uh, uh African-Americans in this country, minorities in this country, people who've been uh, abused by a system that uh, often was unfair, uh, he became a surrogate uh, for their frustrations, anger. And, 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 and it was a tremendous education, I think, for a lot of, of white people to, to see just how alienated uh, African-Americans were from the legal system. Now, what makes this the sort of perfect dramatically is that O.J. Simpson was perhaps the single least deserving beneficiary yes. of that, not starting with the fact that he actually killed those two people, right. starting with the fact that he'd never done squat for the African-American community, starting with the fact that he you know, had every advantage that most defendants, certainly African-American defendants, don't have. But race was such an enormous factor that people were able to look past that. Now, just to jump ahead 20-plus years, I was lucky enough to have FX make this wonderful miniseries based yes. on my book, which you know people thought, oh, will it seem topical? Well, it came out just in the aftermath of Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the, the, the endless conversation in our country about race in general and law enforcement and race in particular, which just reminded everyone how um, rich and important this subject remains. Your next book was uh, about another um, proceeding that has some, uh, some uh, relevance to what we're going through today. That was the Monica Lewinsky case that also uh, that, that, that sprang out of a special counsel uh, uh, investigation. Um, it, the, 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 the book is a vast conspiracy, mm -hmm. so I learned to, you always say the title of your book. You were on book tour, you know this. Yeah, but you've written uh, so many. I don't know how many I can, how many <laughs> I can exactly. chill for in one. Uh, I know. Um, yeah, well, you know, it was, again, it was a great high and low story uh, because, you know, it was about you know, this middle-aged man who had an affair with this young woman at the office, not exactly a shocking or, or, or uh, unfamiliar story, yet it wound up in the garb 
of a constitutional crisis, so to speak. Yes, the garb. Yes, yes. I know. In the dress, in the <laughs> you blue can't dress. talk about these I, things I, without I, well, you know, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I learned never to say this was a seminal case. You can't <laughs> yeah. say that. Yeah, going back to my uh, 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 my uh, Lewinsky vocabulary. Um, it was, um, it, it, no, it, it was, I mean, you know, much of the story was bizarre and hilarious. You know, Linda Tripp, Lucien Goldberg, mm-hmm. the whole bizarre cast of characters. But again, it, it, it turned into something about, that tells us a lot about, you know, the, what kind of country we are. Let me ask you a couple of things about it. One is uh, you, uh, you took the, a hard and critical look at Ken Starr, who I did. was the, uh, yeah. and um, and a lot of the things that are being leveled at Mueller were being leveled at Starr. And to be fair, Starr's investigation started off as a investigation of Whitewater, a land transaction, right. and ended up with this. So it it traveled far uh, afield. But there was also a strategy on uh, on the. On the part of the supporters of the president to very much define the investigation as a politically motivated investigation, and in that sense, isn't the right now taking a page from the same book? And in fact, you know, to a to, to a certain extent, I don't blame them. I mean, you know, one of the things that they keep talking about is that you know a lot of the people who work for Mueller. Uh, gave money to Clinton or, or Democratic candidates. I wrote several pieces in The New Yorker, um, uh, one in particular about the people who worked for Starr, many of whom were conservative and, and politically active. Hickman Ewing from Tennessee, a name that was familiar at the time, uh, now largely forgotten, who was very conservative. And, and, and you know, my, my thought is that's... Fair game. I mean, I think that is a legitimate point for, for, for Trump to make. Now, what was different is that Clinton did not have the option under, under the independent counsel law of firing mm-hmm. uh, Starr. That, it just there was no legal mechanism for him to do that. I think what makes this situation very different is that there is the real possibility that um, Trump may, may fire uh, either Mueller or Rob Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who's supervising Mueller, which gives the story a, a somewhat different cast. What do you rate the chances of that happening? You know, I think at this point, the chances of of uh, a tr- uh, well of 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 Trump firing Mueller are remote. I think tr- even Trump understands that that is the the perhaps the only thing that could turn Republicans against him. Rosenstein, I think, is still hanging by a thread. And, and I, th- I think he and very And that well would be a hurt. backdoor way of controlling the investigation, it, it, it including the, whether or not the report uh, is released at the end of the day uh, that, uh, that the special counsel turns into the justice. Correct. And, and, and I think, you know, every time we think that, well, Donald Trump would never do X, you know, no president would do X. Trump does X. Trump says X. Trump Trump has uh, redefined, and I think not in a positive way. You know the 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 range of ways that presidents can express themselves or act. So you know, yes, I I think that he will not fire Mueller, but I still think it's not out of the question that he'll fire Mueller. I mean, you know, he is not constrained by the norms that other presidents have been, and mm-hmm. and and I think. 
that you, we, we need to keep that in mind every time we think about anything Trump might do. Let me ask you about Bill Clinton uh, and Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I'm an admirer of, of Clinton uh, as a politician, as a public official, as a president. I, I, I sense there's a but coming here. Well, I mean, the uh, but you're, is you're what not, you wrote a whole book about. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not famous for your admiration for the Clinton no, no, clan. No, 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 that's no. not true. Yeah. They, first of all, uh, I was supportive of him. Uh-huh. I helped him. He was... They've been incredibly kind to me in my life and helpful mm-hmm. to causes that I care about. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, let me stipulate that. Uh, and but it strikes me, you know, uh, now uh, that uh, you know, I had a friend say, "Well, how could anyone see that Access Hollywood tape and vote for Donald Trump?" And I have I had to confront the reality of, well, you know, I was for Clinton twice, um, and. Even though the Monica Lewinsky thing was the 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 sort of the, the 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 act that everyone focuses on, there was a history there that everyone knew. Well, but but I mean, in fairness to Clinton, I mean, before Monica Lewinsky, you know, he had admitted that he'd caused pain in his marriage. You know, there was the Jennifer Flowers story. I mean, th- there, you know, he he had one or more extramarital affairs. That's what we knew when he was elected in 1992 and 1996. I mean, that's really w- the extent of what we knew. I mean, is it, within I, the political I, community, though, within the Democratic community, there was lots of lot of stories. But but the stories, stories were. I mean, the stories were not. But isn't some that what the story? Some of the. Let, let me just say this: yeah. if those stories were presented in today's context, they would have been. Uh, they would have been really, really uh, disqualifying. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm struggling with it is what I'm telling you. I'm struggling with it. And I'm struggling. I mean, I, I also think, you know, it, it is very much worthwhile to think about the Monica Lewinsky story in the context of the Me Too moment we are living in. You know, it wasn't just an extramarital affair. It was a relationship with not just a subordinate, but someone who was about yeah, 17 I, levels down. Yes. Uh, and, and so the and, notion and a of, couple of generations. Right. I mean, the, 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 the notion of consent uh, in that circumstance, even though, you know, Monica She, Lewinsky, by the way, I ran into her in New York uh, uh-huh. some time ago, just by chance, and I had a very nice conversation with her about her, the work she's doing on cyberbullying, right. which is very admirable. And what I came away from that conversation thinking is, this, she's in her mid-40s 40s, now. 40s, I know, which is hard to believe. And her whole life will be defined by that one thing. And she struck me as a really admirable person who, you know, and I, I was profoundly sad for about it, it, you know, I have the I have the belief that you know the public really doesn't pay that much attention to most stories, and you know people move on and the circus moves on. Monica Lewinsky was so famous at such a young age that unfortunately she has not been able to yeah. move on. And I and the, and, the, and 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 you know when you think about you know what she did to deserve that, the the the, the punishment is excessive. For you, the crime. You you wrote a couple of more books that I I would like to explore at length. One was called, uh, but I can't. Too okay. close to call about the two thousand uh, uh, election. And I just want to ask you one question sure, about okay. it. The court decide essentially decided that election five to four. How much of a watershed event was that in our sort of political history? Well, I, I think it it. it, it it looms large, and, and I've been thinking about it recently um, in, in the sense that, um, you know, the difference between 
Warren Christopher, the former Secretary of State who worked for Gore initially, and James Baker, the mm-hmm. former Secretary of State who, who masterminded. They were, they were the two opposing leaders of the recount. Effort. Right. And, um, you know, Warren Christopher was this very proper, uh, you know, sort of reticent, quiet, serious, intellectual, and James Baker, equally intelligent, but much tougher mm-hmm. and much more willing to use the levers of public opinion. And and, 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 and the thing about Baker is he lived in two worlds. He was a, a, a statesman on the one hand, and he was a nut-cutting political strategist absolutely. Uh, par excellence. I mean, one of the best of his generation. And, and you know, I was thinking about it this very week. Um, it, it's a little bit of an inside baseball story, but something that's quite relevant to, to, to what I tend to cover is um, the um, the blue slip rule in the United States Senate, mm-hmm. which is something that's it in effect says home state senators, even of the opposition party, get to veto a president's uh, judicial appointments, federal judicial appointments mm-hmm. in that. And when Barack Obama was president and Pat Leahy was um, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Democrat, Democrat from Vermont, from Vermont. He honored Republicans' blue slips, and there was a seat on the Seventh Circuit, which is the the federal appeals court that includes here in Chicago, uh, that was kept open for six years because the Republicans uh, wouldn't give a blue slip. Well, that seat has just been filled this week with a uh, Obama uh, with a uh, Trump appointment that the. Democrats had tried to ban- stop with a blue slip, but Charles Grassley, the the uh, the Republican chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said the hell with blue slips. Mm-hmm. So it's the Democrats played by the old rules and the Republicans are playing by new rules. And the Republicans are tougher and more ruthless. And I think, just getting back to your original question about the recount in Florida, that was a big difference between the Democrats and Republicans, and I think that has recurred. So where does this all end? Because another example of this is uh, you know, Republicans slowed down nominations. Harry Reid removed the filibuster for lower court judges, but left it in place for the Supreme Court. McConnell uh, sat on the Merrick Garland appointment for almost a year after Justice uh, Scalia passed away uh, and held it open. And now that slot, significant slot, uh, has been taken by Justice Gorsuch, who's quite conservative. Uh and you hear, uh, and and we've lost the filibuster for the Supreme Court as well. Um, I mean, it, it feels like we're in this sort of spiral in which both sides are, uh, and and there are a lot of Democrats who feel as you do, which is you can't play by Marcus of Queensbury rules when the other side is is not. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you, I'd make the argument that Democrats actually believe in norms and institutions and so on, and that carries with it a, a, a special burden. But either way, where does this all end? Well, I, I don't know where it ends. And, and, and let, me, let me put, a, let, let me p- label this controversy with a specific controversy. Yeah. Now, it, it is unlikely, but not out of the question, that the Democrats will retake the Senate mm-hmm. in uh, the, the upcoming mm-hmm. midterm elections. Let's say they do. And Chuck Schumer becomes majority leader. Will and, they? And there's a justice. And, and there's an opening on the Supreme Court. And there's an opening on the Supreme Court. I've thought about this a lot. And uh, I will think, they give Trump an opportunity? I, will they? Give, and and I think if they do, the base of the Democratic Party will go berserk, mm-hmm. and they will they will not they they will move to recall Chuck Schumer. They, they, I mean, I think 
if the Democrats retake the Senate, uh, ultimately the Democrats will not consider the nomination of anyone other than in in the event other than uh if the pres if president trump decides to nominate merrick garland yeah well they, you know, they, they, but this this is interesting on the markets of queensberry thing because uh, you know i remember when i was in the white house and you wrote a whole book about right how do you uh, find time to anyway you wrote a, a, a book about the whole the process of obama's court right. appointments and one of the reasons that he Merrick Garland was always on the list, right. and Obama always said, I'm going to keep Merrick Garland on the list because there may be a time when we don't have a Democratic Senate, and he is a guy who would be broadly acceptable, and of course, it turned out that he wasn't accepted. Right. So, um, uh, now, on this, you also wrote a book, a, a great book called The Nine, right. about the inside dynamics of the court. Uh, you've got several justices who are quite elderly Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, chief among them, G but G Anthony Kennedy, who's seemingly he's very healthy, 81, but, he, but he's talked about yeah. uh, retiring. Stephen uh, Breyer, 79. It, right. Ruth, Ruth Ginsburg is 85, and 85 is not the new anything. Uh, 85 <laughs> is old. Yes. So uh, um, the, the, the actuarial likelihood of there being a vacancy is very high. Well, not just actuarial, but I mean, certainly as far as Kennedy is concerned, uh, I, I, you know, we'll find out in a couple of weeks whether Because at leaves. the end of the term is when That's they That's when general. they usually leave, although there's no requirement that they announce it then. But I, I think Kennedy would. I don't think Kennedy is going to leave this year, but I think next year is, is, is quite likely, actually. Well, if he uh, leaves next year, then you're really going to have resistance because, you know, uh, the same, there, then the argument's going to be, well, we've got a presidential election right around the corner, and under the McConnell rule, we should let the people decide. Well, the one date to keep in mind is February 13th, uh, because February 13th, 2016, was the day that Scal uh, Justice Scalia died. And, um, you know, certainly if any justice leaves after February 13th, 2020, Democrats will, ha will have a strong argument. But, you know, Mitch McConnell is all about power. And, and if, if Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader, he's going to push through a nomination uh, with, his, with his conference. I mean, one, one of the facts yeah. that, that is just indelibly inscribed in my mind is that uh, Republicans care more about judges than Democrats do. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is just a fact that Republicans are more motivated by yeah. uh, or, or the issues of, of getting control of the courts. And, and McConnell is—and also McConnell is looking at a circumstance now where his chances of passing major legislation— are slipping to vanishing, even, you know, certainly for the rest of the... So mm -hmm. all he can do is get judges confirmed, and that's what he's going to do, and he's going to do it until the day Donald Trump leaves office. In the closing uh, minutes here, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, go back to the probe that, you're, mm -hmm. that you've written about, that you comment on uh, on CNN, and that you're writing uh, a book about... Um, Sum up for me where you think we are now. Uh, there, the thing has been bifurcated, right? So we have some of the action in Washington, Mueller, the Russia probe. Now we have this burgeoning issue of Michael Cohen, uh, who uh, seems uh, doomed, uh, unless the president steps in and pardons him, doomed to be indicted sometime soon. But tell me what you think the state of these things are, understanding that this is a podcast and by the time it airs, which <laughs> could be right. very soon, there may be six new developments. Well, you know, 
Um, I, I'm going to say the three words that you're never allowed to say on cable news, yes. which are, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I am writing this book about the, the Mueller investigation, but I'm not writing it anytime soon because I don't have a lot of insight and access to that office. I mean, that has been one of the leak-free yeah. operations. It's been remarkable, it's been, really. it's been remarkable. And, and so, That's why when the questions that Mueller wanted to ask Trump were leaked, it became apparent very quickly that those weren't leaked by the Mueller team. Oh, no, yeah, out of the question that it would be. Um, I, I think we, we are approximately in the middle. Uh, you know, I think the Mueller office is is iceberg like in that three quarters of it is is below the surface. You know, when when they indicted 13 Russians for, you know, social media conspiracy, most people didn't even know they were investigating the subject, much less that these people were about to be indicted. I think there will be an indictment in the not too distant future of people in connection with the hacking. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Julian Assange, the 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 uh, John Podesta, the DNC emails. I think, and one of the interesting things there will be: Will Roger Stone be indicted too? Because that might be the first time a, a Roger Stone, being the uh, sometime political aide to uh, to, to who, President who Trump. boasted or or, or taunted uh, shortly before the release of the Podesta. Emails that uh, Podesta would be a target, right? And I and I think he's the first possible uh, link that Mueller might draw between Russia and the Trump campaign. But you know, as we are learning day by day with with the Cohn investigation, this siren is not a sound effect. This no, it's just, just street just noises in the city of yeah. Chicago. Yeah. But um, it's uh, I, I I think. There's a lot more we're going to find out, and, and I think uh, I, I remain uh, of the belief that I have since a year ago that there is a real obstruction of justice case to be made against yeah, Trump that, for, yeah. the, for for the firing of Comey and related and related matters. Uh, I, I think ultimately that will be something Congress will have to deal with or not deal with on an impeachment basis, not. Uh, a criminal case, because I think Mueller will honor the Justice Department tradition, though it's not a law, that a sitting president can't be indicted. So I think um, that... That makes, uh, that makes control of Congress a kind of interesting <laughs> uh, question here, because it seems unlikely, based on what we've seen, that the Republican Congress... I mean, if you look at how the House Intelligence Committee has run, some of the other issues they've dealt with, it seems unlikely that this particular Congress would take impeachment up under any circumstance. Uh, unlikely? Unlikely? How about never in a million years? How <laughs> yeah. about, like, never? Uh, I mean, you know, and, and one of the things that, that's worth remembering about the two impeachment experiences of our lifetime in, 19, in 1974, Republican president, Democratic Congress. Yes. 1998, Democratic president, Republican Congress. Both circumstances, I think, unlikely that a party of if the party of the president had been in control of the House of Representatives, whether impeachment right. would have come up at all. And, and those were less partisan the, times. That was before the age of Fox News. That's and right. Social media. So, so it is. It is. But even then, it was unlikely. Now, the only reason impeachment will be taken up, and it's by no means clear that it will be, but the only possibility of impeachment is if the Democrats retake the House in November.
Yeah. And that actually is going to be an issue in the campaign because there are those on the left who say that should be a, a, a an obligation of support or for support. There are those on the right, and I suspect this will gin up over time, who will suggest to their base that they have to vote because this is all a backdoor way of having a, a, a bloodless coup I'm, to remove I'm, the president. Uh, I'm, I'm writing an article for The New Yorker about this even now. Of course and, you and, are. And I, and, I, uh, and I had a great interview with Ted Cruz, who I've written about a lot over the years. And, and Cruz just can't wait to talk about impeachment. He loves yeah. to talk about impeachment because he thinks this will drive his base out. It's like he says to me, you know, the day, after the election, Nancy Pelosi is going to call for impeachment hearings, and you know the left is crazed to get, pre- and the only way to stop them is to elect me and other Republicans. So, so it is a motivating tool for both sides. The impeachment issue. Yeah, but here's a leavening fact that we should also add, which is no president has ever been convicted. It takes an extraordinary, extraordinary number of votes, sixty-seven votes in the Senate, to convict a sitting president. The, the, I don't want to kind of set you off in paroxysms again here, but the, it's unlikely that uh, we'll find just that 67, 67 votes. Well, and, and, votes. And, and, but that's politically significant. And one of the reasons why so many Democrats, especially Democratic elected officials, don't want to go down the road of impeachment is that there is the argument, what's the point? Mm-hmm. It's like, why, why spend all this time and energy trying to impeach someone in the House of Representatives when there's absolutely no chance that that, that president, President right. Trump, will be convicted in the Senate, which is, you know, it's that's a good argument. It's not the it's not the whole argument, but it's a good yeah. argument. I mean, there are two counter arguments. One is because if uh, if misdeeds were committed by the president of the United States, the American people ought to know what they were. And then there's the less uh, there's there's the uh, the more political point, which is that uh, people ought to know because the president may run for re-election, and this ought to be part of the public uh, record. But uh, you know, I'm in the camp that. One ought to allow Bob Mueller to finish his probe. And I've said this to Democrats, mm-hmm. ought to be in, uh, uh, committed to accepting whatever, that pro- whatever his conclusions are as the result of a fair-minded and thorough investigation. So if he comes back and says, you know, there were a lot of things that were done that were uh, extraordinary and uh, ill-advised, but none of them represented a crime, uh, I think people need to be ready to accept that just as I would argue to my friends on the other side of uh, of the aisle that uh, they 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 ought to take seriously uh, whatever he comes back with if it turns out that there were crimes. Uh, again, you know, we'll see. We're so tribal now. I'm not sure either of those arguments will prevail. Yeah, I don't know. You've be- you've become like this grand old man, no, I or a grand yeah. middle aged man. You know, David of, Frum uh, was here last week, and yeah. he asked me, "Why are you so zen?" And he yeah. didn't mean it as a compliment. You yeah, know? no, I, I, you, you do see more Zen these days. <laughs> Being the, on the, a university this campus, campus you know? I know it's like, yeah, and you know, in a hundred years, we'll yeah. just look back. No, but I mean, I, I but think, I, I mean, I, I think you'd, you'd, you know, I guess because I believe in this stuff, and I refuse to give up my belief, and uh, so I, I stick to those principles that I think. Uh, are important for a functioning democracy, and I try and promote them as best I can. But it gets hard on some. Well, days, and you know? and and you know, I, I as I'm, I'm thinking a lot about impeachment now because of yeah. the story that 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 you know the 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 
the division in the Democratic Party between the people who want to, you know, set a good example and the people who want to screw them just like they screwed us. Yes. I mean, that's a real that's a real fight that's going on There's now. No and I don't doubt. think the answer is resolved. Which side wins? Yeah. Well, we will. It'll, it's going to be fascinating. That's that's for sure. Listen, man, I could talk to you about any one of your projects for uh, for an hour, but uh, I'm happy to uh, skim the surface with you and hope that this is the first of many conversations. I hope so. Thank you, brother. That's all right. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.